Welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. I am your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I am here with Martin Fringe Willis. Fringe, finally. Mm -hmm. I finally made the fringe. You're fringy. I am. I am? That's a rumor? Well, yeah, that's what, that's a, you know, in some arenas you would be. That's absolutely true. Probably in most, like if you you go to family dinners, right? They're like, weird dude. Yeah, well, you know, in the in my real profession, you know, fine arts and antiques, yeah. um, you know, most would consider it kind of fringy, I would say, yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. However, I've had a few people contact me that either used to go to my auctions or knew me in another way uh, that wanted to tell me about their UFO sighting. Oh, how cool. That's really cool. Yeah, found found uh, the show on the internet and contacted me. Oh, sweet. Well, that's so always it's not fun. That's bad. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. not bad being a fringer. So, <laughs> I'm very excited about my guest today because it is Leslie Kane. Excuse me, had a little hiccup there. Yeah, Leslie. So, I am luckily the first interview Leslie has done since she's been back. Um, or not since she's been back, but since she's done her New York Times interview. Well, the first UFO fringy person, I guess. Um <laughs> Which, of course, compared to the New York Times, I am a bit fringy, so I can understand. So uh, this is really cool because we get to talk about, you know, more about what those of us who are covering this sort of thing on a regular basis would probably want to talk about. And, uh, of course, Leslie's great. Um, You know, one interesting thing uh, we talk about here is how the story came about. And surprise, surprise... It did not come about by some mysterious, you know, guy in a garage parking lot going, Psst, hey, Leslie, hey, Leslie, this is, <laughs> this is, it. I'm with MJ12 and we, we need you to seed some information. So, yeah, so uh, that did not happen. And, you know, with all of these rumors and, and conspiracy theories going around, uh, you know, as always, I advise that people talk to those involved to get uh, a better idea of how things actually, you know, come about as opposed to speculating and, and making up some some wild kind of stories that are fringe even for this field. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. I'm really, really looking forward to hearing uh, Leslie on this show. Yeah, because uh, and and when it comes down to it, the truth is often uh, more interesting. And you know, people like Leslie and others, they deserve credit. You know, we give credit to these. Uh, I feel non-existent MJ12 people uh, for a lot of stuff. When in reality, it's the hard work of UFO researchers who are able to uncover and get information out. You know, it's so important, really, when you think about it, because now 
uh, I'm sure you've probably noticed more people looking at your website, more people looking at my website and mm-hmm. listening to shows than ever. And that is the people that were on the fence about, you know, the UFO topic or never really paid that much attention to it after the New York Times story broke on December 16th. A lot of people have kind of like it sparked some interest in people out there. Yeah. And so to get the right info out is so important at this point instead of like burning bridges and, you know, getting people upset when they see a hoax video and say, oh, it's all this, huh? It's it's just hard too because you know I keep thinking of those people, and um, and for instance, uh, we were at Mufon this last weekend, and the topics were very fringe, and there were a lot of people there, probably some new people, and I can imagine that you know they come to these meetings, they hear these really wild stories about aliens doing this and that, and they leave thinking, well. This is exactly why I never wanted anything to do with these people. Mm-hmm. And they just go back to their normal lives and, and thinking, you know, most of these UFO people are really weird um, alien tinfoil hat types. So it's really hard uh, to find credible information on this topic because the vast, vast majority is is speculative and um, odd. Um, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah, that's why I love following the mainstream media. There's not many people out there anymore. I mean, Billy Cox used to write some stuff for the for um, I forget which paper he wrote for Sarasota, Sarasota, yeah. And he's v- barely ever writing anymore. His was kind of a column blog type thing. Lee Spiegel isn't writing for the Huffington Post anymore. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, there's not many credible outlets for people. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I think there's, uh, I'm hoping there's going to be more of a move. Um, you know, I know one of your articles you wrote was, you know, what's next before it fades away. And I think, you know, I, I think the topic, you know, maybe I'm wrong because people talk about how many times it has faded away with, you know, something great and new out there. But um, I think that it's going to be taken a little more seriously. I, I really do feel that way. Uh, I think it media. is. Because now there is a serious source of information, at least with Luis and, and some of his colleagues with the TTSA, uh, the t- To the Stars Academy. Um, so, And, of course, Tom DeLonge has really taken a backseat. He hasn't – we haven't heard anything from him since before the New York Times, um, you know, at least publicly since the New York Times story. So he's really kind of letting them take the lead, which is, which is good because, um, you know, uh, he's able to uh, relay – facts and information right right all right so let's get on to the news all right well i would like to actually talk about a video clip um actually a Mm. news story and um you know regarding um the actually leslie kane is Mm -hmm. in this and uh tucker carlson from fox news uh really took a serious look at uh, the ufos he talked about um, you know, these are these are something real. They're unidentified and they're out there. And he brought Leslie on a uh, great conversation. And I'm um, hoping the uh, listener out there can uh, see, uh, you know, watch the clip. Um, it is on YouTube and it's on several sources, actually. He later brings on um, David Fravor and David Fravor really shares some details that are certainly not um earthly craft as uh, as he describes them and i also like when uh leslie 
Uh, actually, uh, Tucker brings up the uh, gate C-17 at Chicago Air. I think he calls it C-25, but at least he's got the, you know, the gist of the idea of what happened. And says, this is serious. This is something, you know, the um, the FAA should take absolutely serious. And, you know, so they discuss that. And he said, this is not a potato field up in Maine. And I started thinking, well, hey, wait a minute. I'm in a potato field <laughs> up in Maine. But anyway, uh, so... Uh, yeah, in the 1950s, this is a busy, one of the busiest airports in the country. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, uh, a great interview. I hope you check it out. It's up. Uh, there's almost, I think there's about 60 media interviews um, since this story broke on December 16th. There's somewhere around that. And to me, this is, uh, this is the best one, actually. Very mm -hmm. well done. Yeah. In my last couple of articles on this, including the one you're talking about, um, you know, the story fading away, now what? There's a link to Giuliani, I think his name is, um, and he is compiling all of those videos. So it's right. a great resource to be able to watch all of the, the media interviews out there um, so people can find all of those. But I did not see the interview with Fravor. Uh, and Tucker Carlson. Um, I'm not a regular Fox News watcher, but I did see Either Leslie's I. interview, and I agree with you. It was really good. I mean, he was obviously really into it. Leslie and I do talk about it somewhat um, in this interview, this interview, uh, her interview with Tucker Carlson. But yeah, he seemed so excited to talk about UFOs. He was somewhat educated. He didn't even really talk much about the New York Times story. He uh, talked more general about the topic. And like you said, brought up uh, Chicago O'Hare, which is um, another very, very credible, interesting story. And he brings up a great point. And, I, you know, one of my first cases as a MUFON investigator when I was you know, delving into this stuff and figuring it out. Uh, actually, I think it was my first case. Um, it was a security guard who saw something over Lookout Mountain in outside of Denver, uh, west of town. And that was where, you know, planes flew. It was in the path of the commercial planes coming out of, um, I think DIA was open by that time in uh, Denver. And he was concerned. He had just come out of Iraq. He had not, you know, been home for very long. And he was in kind of an alert sense, he talked about, you know. Um, he still had that instinct of, hey, when you see something mm -hmm. unusual, you need to report it to the authorities. Mm -hmm. And so he was walking around the campus that he was security. And, you know, he came outside 20 minutes after having seen the object, and it was still there. He said wow. it kind of looked kind of like what they talked about, the tic-tac shape. It kind of looked like that, and it was making just kind of sitting still but making kind of weird movements. And so he decided, I better report this. He called the FAA. He called the airport. Um, they told him, maybe you should call the news channels. So, But he thought, you know what, that's ridiculous. Why would I call them? So he went online and luckily found MUFON and uh, reported it. So I called the FAA, and uh, that was my first time in, related, or in relation to a UFO investigation. And they told mm. me to call Peter Davenport and, you know, the New Fork. They didn't say Peter Davenport. They said the National UFO Reporting Center. They said, we don't take those sorts of reports. 
And I was really frustrated. I was really concerned. I was like, first of all, I'm not reporting. I was asking if they had received reports of anything unusual at that time in that area because I knew, you know, this guy had called. I wondered if others had as well. But second of all, what? You know, you see something. Someone is reporting uh, an unusual object in the air in commercial airspace that could pose a threat to, you know, uh, commercial airlines and you don't care, call New Fork. And of course, it was doubly kind of uh, took me aback because I knew of, of New Fork and I knew New Fork was Peter Davenport, one guy um, right. in Washington sitting at a desk taking reports and putting them online. What good is that going to do? If this truly is a threat. So it was just shocking to me how ridiculous uh, their response was. Um, that is, um, you know, it, it's baffling to me. And, you know, on as far as like NICAP um, goes, do you think they're almost like a liaison or how, how does that fit in um, as far as the FAA and well, reports of UFOs? FAA. Now, what they'll do is they do, and and people can try right now. Uh, and there has been some docu, there have been documents, and uh, you know I've tried along the years. And they used to say call New Fork, but uh, sometimes they'll say call New Fork or Bigelow Aerospace, or at the time they called it Bass Bigelow Advanced Aeronautic Space something like that you know whatever his i forget what the acronym of his uh, kind of paranormal um um department of his group but they would say new fork or uh bigelow aerospace um usually they would say new fork first because i think peter davenport was the first one to say hey faa if people are reporting this stuff you can send it to me and they're like okay you know um he got mm-hmm. there first so that's why bigelow's second billing um, as far as NICAP, the, um, which is another uh, investigation organization that works with pilots, I think they have worked directly with pilots and have essentially gotten the buzz around that, hey, here's a credible organization we as pilots can report to. So I think they've reached out, and that's who they want to hear from is pilots. Right. Do you think, though, with um, like with all that's happening – um, you know, that it's a possibility that the FAA will actually take these cases a little more serious. I mean, it it just it just it baffles me because it has to be some type of concern somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would think so, too. And I, I would think that if they don't take it more seriously, at least maybe they'll be pressured to do so. Right. Um, because certainly uh People who want them to take it more seriously have a stronger case now when they say, hey, the Department of Defense has taken it seriously. I think, you know, it would be wise if you did as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's a stronger case for it. And I mean, even if they just sent it to some department who said, oh, it's nothing, at least that's something, at least that's less ridiculous than just saying, oh, we're not interested, Um, you know, send it to some guy who's just going to posted on a website uh, at least they should do some sort of investigation because we know you know for example there is an organization in the uk and essentially they deal with near misses and they have um whenever an aircraft uh it is comes into close proximity with another 
airborne, you know, object. There's a report that is made to this organization and this board investigates them. And it's a public organization, so they release their findings. Of course, uh, sometimes these things turn out to be balloons. There was a funny story where it turned out, you know those shark blimp balloons? Oh, yes. One of those got loose. Went right by. Right. Yeah, and so it went by the plane, and uh, that was one of the, the unknowns that they solved. And they do solve some of these unknowns. Often they turn out to be drones or something. But they have a few good cases in their files where they don't know what the heck it was, and sometimes they demonstrate some very weird um, um, maneuvers. So we've got several stories on our website about that. But uh, that at least was, you know, a credible group that did some investigating to try to find out what what it was you know people came in contact with right so even if their conclusions are we're not quite sure what it was but we don't think it's something of concern at least they're looking at it it's just ridiculous not to look at these potential threats at all yeah absolutely i agree so very frustrating that's how they say it in the uk frustrating that's right Mm mm-hmm there's Sorry. a great case of the English Channel with those big yellow things. I wonder if that same. Do you know what I mean? You, do you, do you I know don't know. I can't think of what <laughs> this might be. Uh, they were crossing the English Channel in a small. Uh, it wasn't a private plane, but it was like a four seater. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, I, I better stop talking about it. I don't have the details in front of me, but um, but that was a definitely unexplainable one. Huge, huge objects. Yeah, interesting. Wasn't that, it was back in the 80s or 90s. So how long was that organization you're talking about in England been uh, been going? Uh, I would imagine for a long time. I can't say for cer- certain, but I think for a, for a long time. So, yeah, they probably do have files going back. And you'd be able to look and, uh, like, Google or search for Near Miss maybe in our – website and you'd be able to find the name of the organization in fact maybe i could do that now while we're talking but um yeah i'm sure they they've had this board for quite some time mm. mm-hmm. so which is good Great. news yeah and while i'm looking for that uh you know another story i don't know if you saw this this is in the sun it was written by emma perry the girl that i've been talking to um so she's she's um, written a couple of stories uh, on things I've had to say and everything, but this is interesting. So um, they have written about Colonel Charles Halt uh, speculating, I suppose, on the possibility that John Burroughs and Jim Pennison, the two two of the witnesses uh, of the 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 craft, you know, in the forest during in 1980 during the Rendlesham incident, that he suggested perhaps they were abducted. Um, mm. and and I guess the piece of information that's interesting with this is that they he said there was some sort of missing time. At least they were out of radio contact for a period of time. Um, now. They didn't talk to Charles Holt, it doesn't appear. They did talk to Nick Pope. And um, I kind of wish that M.M. would have let me know. I could have got her in touch with Colonel Holt because Mm -hmm. I'm sure that he would have something to say whether or not 
that he believes this to be the case or not. I mean, it seems like, because it's an audio thing, that it was just speculation. And uh, this audio comes from, um, there was going to be a documentary that uh, was going to be made. And this uh, UFO researcher, uh, Hesseltine, he's a police officer, out, or was a police officer, I don't think he is anymore, but he went out with a halt into the forest out there and and videotaped him because they were going to do a documentary, and, and this was part of that video. The documentary, I guess, never got made, so we only recently released this uh, information, and uh, kind of interesting. Hmm. Yeah, that's something. So, yeah, um, I remember the last time I talked to John... Uh, I was trying to get that information out of him because he, you know, he he mentions that himself, and I forget who the other person was that was with him. Um, it seemed to like boil down to missing time, and he because he just plain doesn't remember what happened. There was yeah. like a memory gap there. His experience is weird, and that's what's weird about that. And you know, I've interviewed them both, but uh, people don't really go into how their memories are different. I mean. Uh, mm-hmm. Costenza, I think his name was. Right, he, right. He That's stayed it, yeah. with the automobile, and he was frightened. And the other guys were too. And uh, so John and Jim wandered towards the forest, towards this light they were seeing. Uh, John stopped at one point because the light was getting really bright and scaring him. Um, so he stopped. But yeah, he says he had some missing memory, and he felt kind of strange. Uh, Jim continued on to actually find this, you know, triangular craft, he says, uh, you know, there on the forest floor before it lifted off and flew out. But uh, John doesn't remember seeing a structured craft at all like that, whereas Jim Mm -hmm. does, and he explains the craft in detail. He took notes while he was observing it. So it's just strange how their accounts differ and these... um, weird effects that especially John um, says that he experienced. So Mm -hmm. it's a very odd case. That's for sure. Yeah. It's the most convoluted one of them all. I think (laughs) Mm -hmm. really so many twists and turns. Yeah. Many, many twists and turns. So really odd stuff. Mm -hmm. So, and I think Gary Hesseltine, of course, one of the controversial figures is, is Larry uh, Warren, who was one of the first people to come out about it. But people argue that he only heard about it from his colleagues. He didn't really experience much, and he claims to have experienced many things, but uh, he seems to exaggerate and be less than honest. And finally, uh, one of his uh, buddies who worked with him, Peter Robbins, has stopped working with him over all of his shenanigans. But, um, yeah, there's that whole aspect. And then, you know, Halt who his experience was on a different day than John and Jim's. and mm-hmm. uh, But still very credible, recorded. Um, and uh, I'm sure we still have more information to uh, hear possibly about that case as time goes on. I think so. I think it's one of, uh, one of the big ones mm-hmm. in, in the, the top five, I would, I would say. Oh, yep. That reminds me, I did pull up a story. It's the UK Air Prox Board. So if people wanted to Google that to find out more about those near misses and the unknown oh, okay. near misses, it's the UK 
Airprox board. And if you Google near misses, like I said, one of them that we wrote about in 2013 was a pilot who reported a near miss with a UFO in the vicinity of London. And uh, that story has a link to the Airprox board and tells you more about it. But, uh, yep, that's one of their their UFO cases. Interesting stuff. The one I was talking about is the 2007 Alderney UFO sighting mm. across the English Channel. Well, so, that's interesting, too. Yeah, real good one. There's the doorbell, but we're also out of time. So uh, thank you once again for joining me, Martin. Uh, you're always great. Uh, remember, you can listen to Martin at UFO Podcast. And you have a wonderful day, my friend. All right, you too. Have a good one, and I'll talk to you next week. Yep, let's go ahead and talk to Leslie after... Oh, I'm going to do that over again. Let's go ahead and talk to Leslie after this break. If you're listening to the podcast, you'll just hear a short musical interlude if you're listening on kgra you will hear some wonderful commercials be sure and patronize these people hopefully you'll hear some of my new commercials for the ufo congress too uh but back in a minute with leslie kane Very, very happy, especially at, at this day and time, to welcome back to the show, Leslie Kane. Hello, Leslie. Hello, Alejandro. Great to be with you. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you have been absolutely swamped with media requests. What's it been like? Wow, it's been intense. I mean, uh, and hard work. The week after the article came out, it was really unbelievable. As you know, there was so much attention drawn to it. So it was, you know, it's 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 been quite a ride. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just been very very intense, demanding of a lot of time and energy. Um, and right now, I'm just sort of enjoying this weekend where there's not as much I have to do. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> When you go into these interviews, for example, with Tucker Carlson, you were on Fox News recently, which was kind of people were like, wow, you know, fuck Tucker Carlson having a UFO discussion on his show, but um, which went very well, of course. What, how do you feel going into it? Do you have any idea, you know, the angle they're going to take, whether they're going to ridicule it or not? I'm usually pretty sure they're not going to ridicule it. I mean, I think, you know, especially the week following the New York Times story, uh, which was when most of the interviews were. I mean, they people were just really turned on by the story. And this recent interview with Tucker Carlson, um, he made it very clear because my publisher set it up that he wanted to talk about my book. That's what he said. Hmm. Uh, he was interested in just having me on a servant expert, not to focus on the, the, the Times story. And it's because he's genuinely interested in this topic. Um, and I, I remember watching the coverage he did after the Time story came out during that week. And he did excellent coverage. I mean, very, very intelligent coverage. I was impressed with it. And and I was his his producers told us that he's really has a genuine interest in this interest in this topic. So I I went in there not knowing what he was going to really want to talk to me about. I had no idea. And he just zeroed in on this O'Hare case, which, you know, took me by surprise. But I thought it was great, 
it was great that he actually knew something about a specific case, mm-hmm. you know, which most anchors don't. And he just seemed to be very passionate about it. So mm-hmm. I think he is genuinely interested in this topic. I really do believe that. And I think he did a great job, you know, irrespective he, of what anything else, his coverage that people might not. I'm not going to comment on Fox, <laughs> yeah. Fox's attitudes, but uh, in terms of UFOs, I think he did a terrific job, and he really has a serious interest in the topic, which is great. Yeah, you could get that from his his enthusiasm, his his excitement to talk to you, and bringing up O'Hara is great because you know, especially at this point, we now have this this you know, the DoD had a program looking into this, taking it seriously. So now it's it's a good time to reflect on the other great cases out there, and of course, Chicago O'Hara was a a really good one. Really good one. I absolutely agree with you. It's such it's such a strong case in terms of illustrating the lack of attention that our government has given to this topic. Right. And the point that he was making and, and you were making that, you know, this thing popped through the clouds and, and when it shot up, uh, these were seen by United Personnel um, in 2008, I think it was, right? 2006. Oh, 2006, 2006 yeah. earlier. And um, <clears throat> but the FAA just called it a weather phenomenon. I think that's what they ended up on. And at first, they didn't want to look into it at all. And he makes a great point that uh, which is the point I think everybody should be making is you know, we obviously, it's it's intuitively intuitively obvious that we should look into situations like this and not just ignore them. Absolutely. And, I, and he really made that point. He kept saying, why wouldn't they do it? He was mm-hmm. like outraged. And I thought that was great because mm-hmm. um, it indicated that he had thought about this. Yeah. So you were also on Don Lemon, and I just wanted to hear your thoughts on this. And of course, that interview went great. But I think the day after or or a couple days after, they had um, Neil deGrasse Tyson on. And although he kind of poo-pooed at least the alien hypothesis for saying we don't have enough evidence for that, which is a good point, I think. Um, Yeah. But... He, he did go on to kind of say something along the similar vein as Tucker Carlson in that we should be looking into these things. He doesn't mind that we spend $22 million looking into these unknown situations because we should be looking into them. When you saw him say that, was that a bit shocking? Yeah, I mean, I was glad he said that. And I think also his point about uh, we can't assume that they're alien is also a valid point. And the irony of that is that we're we're not doing that. We didn't do that in our article. Mm -hmm. We didn't do that in any of it. Uh, There wasn't even a hint of that we had done that, you know. So for him to sort of comment on the New York Times and criticize a point that we never even made isn't really fair. But um, and then he goes on about, you know, when you have an alien, they'll take me out to lunch. I mean. You know, I'll take him out to lunch. That's not the point. The point mm-hmm. is that we have an unknown phenomenon that needs further study. And I think along those lines, he's pretty uh, he's pretty okay with it, as you said. He just likes to stretch it into this realm that isn't where we, we went with it anyway in the first place. And that would be my next question is frustration about that. You're obviously very careful, you and the group who wrote the article, on on how you crafted it and what information you're putting in there, and obviously very aware of the baggage that comes along with with these sorts of stories. So like you said, you're very careful not to make it about aliens. However, much of the media, even Don Lemon, is trying to press you on aliens, and Elizondo's had the same experience, everybody trying to push him on, what about aliens, what about aliens? And uh, 
that hasn't that wasn't in part of the story. That's not what you're talking about. It's true. I mean, and obviously the extraterrestrial hypothesis is a valid one. I mean, I have said that all along. I said that in my book, and I still say that. And there are plenty of very respectable people who have studied this, you know, generals, pilots, and government officials, as I put in the title of my book, that would all agree that the extraterrestrial hypothesis is valid and rational and and but but given even though that's true, we still don't know. We don't know at the level that will satisfy the scientific community. Mm-hmm. And that's where that's, you know, that may be a while. We may eventually get there. But without investing more resources into this, we're not going to get there. And that's why a program like this is important. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, you're, I think it's perfectly valid. But, you know, you can't make that leap. And I think one of the problems with a lot of the people in the UFO community is they've, they've made that leap to such an extent that they say that it's fact. And I understand why people assume that when they when they know a lot about this subject. I mean, it's 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 easy to go there, but in terms of what we want to present to the world at large and where we are at in terms of a society dealing with this topic, oh, we're not there yet. Right. And, so- and and I mean, when you're doing these interviews, which is a great point, and and I think it's 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 difficult to explain that to people because people get frustrated with me uh, for the same thing, regardless of whatever my opinions are, regardless of whether or not I believe in the, uh, that it's a possibility or I believe aliens are actually here interacting with us. You, when you're, when you're speaking with the mainstream or when you're, uh, writing a, a credible paper, like what you guys, you all did a credible article. You need to focus on the facts and what's provable and what you can credibly substantiate um which that's makes exactly right yeah that's exactly right and it makes the piece more powerful and and your pieces certainly have been powerful and they get a lot of attention for that reason yeah i mean i think you have to and you know obviously with the writing with the new york times we have a lot of editors involved as well so mm-hmm. but yeah i mean if, if it's not provable if it's not documentable uh it doesn't go in the in the article, and that's that's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. I think that's the way it should be. Right. So, getting back to uh, the last time we spoke, and that's that's what's kind of funny and, and validating, is you and this was right after the two the Stars Academy was announced, and mm-hmm. we were both kind of. I think we talked soon, uh, maybe a week or so after your article on that, and we were both kind of surprised at the reactions and and people seeming to not get the importance of, for instance, someone coming out and saying, I used to work for the Department of Defense investigating essentially UFOs. Uh, you and I, of course, thought, wow, that's incredible. But, you know, we were both kind of like, I don't know why people are so negative about all of this and uh, not looking at the, that the juice. But it seems that... There were people that certainly took notice, um, the Washington Post, Politico, and then uh, you you all were able to put together this article for the Times that really started the whole thing off. How did that come about? How did um, the article come about? Well, um, I went to a meeting uh, on October 4th with some of that was arranged by some of Elizondo's uh, colleagues who also knew me. And so they wanted me to meet him, basically. And I went down and we, to Washington and we spent 
three or four hours together. Um, uh, and Elizondo, you know, talked to me and I, I was shown documentation. I was shown the videos that, that were eventually released with our story. Um, and just given a, a, you know, told all about Harry Reid. I was shown documents about Harry Reid's involvement and just the story was kind of laid out for me at this meeting. Um, and I realized at that point that it was a New York Times level story, given the documentation that was available uh, for the program and for the people involved and everything else. And so that's that's how it all started. And then I went to my colleague, Ralph Bluthall, who I've known for a long time, who's a who was on staff for the New York Times for 40, 45 years and has since become a freelance writer for the Times. So he continues to work for the Times on a freelance basis. And I went to him and he we had we ended up having then we sat down with somebody in the New York Bureau of the New York Times and had an initial meeting the three of us to, to lay out the story for them. That's how it all started and then that person then there's another meeting with the Washington Bureau and you know it took a while to get the Times on board but once they understood what we had they assigned us uh, a reporter to work with us Helene Cooper who's been absolutely fantastic. She's their Pentagon reporter out of the Washington Bureau. And we just that, – that's how it all started. And we just um, got going on the story, and it took quite a while to do it uh, because the editing process is very intense at the times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, there's just a lot of – every single line is, you know, thought through very carefully. And so there were different drafts that had to go back and forth, and, you know, we had to decide what information would be included and what wouldn't and all that kind of thing. But you're working – at the New York Times, you're working with a team of people. So there's a lot of considerations that go into a story that beyond the considerations of the three reporters that are writing it. Mm-hmm. And, and that was interesting for me to experience because in the past I've written for the Huffington Post where I basically have no editors. You know, I just write a story and I upload it and, that, and it's there. That's mm-hmm. it. And so this is a very interesting process. It's just another level of journalism than I've ever experienced before. And it's just been an amazing opportunity and situation for me to be able to write for the Times. I'm just very grateful for that, that that door's been opened. Were you skeptical that they would pick it up? Um, and, I mean, was, and was Blumenthal, he must have been confident that they would have been, they were, would be interested in the story. Yeah, he thought they would be. Originally, he was the originally pitched it to the times you know through an email because he knows people there because he's worked there for so long and that's how it all started so he was pretty confident in it and it wasn't until we had our sit-down meeting with the um with the with mark i think his name was mark mazzetti he's the investigative investigations editor at the washington bureau he happened to be in new york shortly after we pitched the story and we sat down with him in new york and it was after that meeting i think that we were pretty confident, but he he didn't give us an answer right away. He said, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to people in Washington and get back to you." And we had to wait maybe a week before we heard back again. But um, then we we got the green light. So, were you all you know. aware that the Post, the Washington Post, and Political were also working on stories? Yeah, we heard rumors to that effect, mm-hmm. which was it was disconcerting for us. But mm-hmm. uh, we knew that you know. We knew that we had a story that we didn't think anybody else would be able to get, which is all the on-the-record sources that we had. If you look at the Politico story, it didn't have people on the record. A lot of them were, were anonymous sources. 
And uh, we don't, you know, the Times, we're not, we're not going to do that in the New York Times. Yeah, and, and the so, Post story even seemed a bit more speculative. Yeah, I mean, they didn't have access to a lot of the sources that we had and the, the documents and all kinds of stuff. So they, I don't think any stories could match the one that we did just because we had, you know, access to a lot that the other media didn't have. Mm-hmm. One of the parts in the post story that, um, you know, uh, at least the son has asked me about and, and others, and, and I want to see what your thoughts are on this, is that they seem to be implying that or trying to imply that Elizondo was uh, a little bit... Um, you know, I got the videos released under a false pretense of a bit. They they put in this part that there was some memo, and it is kind of weird the way they wrote it, um, the paragraph on this. Some kind of memo that said he tr- he got it uh, released in order to educate pilots uh, on safety, but he alluded to he really was doing it to get this out to the public and, and show that there's this DOD department. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I have the document that shows uh, the de- the process by which these videos were released, and it doesn't say anything along the lines of what the the post has said. So hmm. I don't know where that came from. The document about the release does it say does it say why they, they he wanted it released and why they approved it? Yeah, it was not to educate pilots. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I have to look at it again, but as I recall, there was nothing on there about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe at our break, I can look at that document again. Yeah, because a big question is, why did they allow him to release those videos? Um, and I guess, do you have that answer? Um, let me look at that document again, maybe, and then we can then okay. I can respond. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll do that at break. We'll, we'll look at that document again. But getting back... Um, to your story, that you know, since um, and of course George Knapp obviously has had somewhat of knowledge of some of this uh, that was going on because he's worked with Bigelow, so at least he knew Bigelow. A lot of us knew Bigelow was spending money on UFO research and these sorts of things back when um, this all was getting funded. Of course, none of us, at least I didn't know, and I I wouldn't imagine you would have known, and maybe even George Knapp didn't know that you know he was working with the Department of Defense at the time. Did you know that? Um, I don't think I did know that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I knew that he was related to uh, government investigations and so on, but it was nothing specific, mm-hmm. nothing specific like this. But Knapp was able to get interviews with Harry Reid. And were you surprised with Harry Reid's reaction? Well, you all even got an interview in your story oh, yeah. with Harry Reid. We um, had the first interview with him. And how did you feel about his reaction? Uh, Harry Reid's? Mm-hmm. Oh, he was fantastic. Absolutely. I mean, our, 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 our um, partner here, Helene Cooper, was the one who flew to Las Vegas and met with him. And uh, he was absolutely wonderful. He spent like an hour with her. He told her everything and, you know, said that he wasn't embarrassed or ashamed or sorry that he'd done this. And he was just a very, very positive, great, great person. And the mm-hmm. interview was, was really fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's a, I think it's a really important component to um, some of the, the 
what's happened since your story and what's it's inspired is Harry Reid coming out and standing firm that mm-hmm. he is very proud of creating this program. He has no regrets whatsoever. And that lends a lot of credibility to um, what Elizondo was doing and the seriousness that uh, many people in the government really do take towards the UFO topic. I agree with you. It was a very, very important component to have him on the record. And uh, we, we knew that that was from the beginning, that we, were, we wanted that to happen. So uh, we we did a lot of our reporting first, so we would have some, you know, we didn't want to, we saved him more, a lot, more or less for the end. We didn't want to alert him in a, too much in advance that we were doing this story. So, um, so yeah, but it, it's an extremely important part of it to have mm-hmm. him speaking out about it. And it feels, uh, at least for me, uh, and I'm guessing for you, a bit validating, because although people like Don Lemon, last time you were on his show, or uh, you've done interviews for important stories you've written for like Chile and other UFO stories in the past few years, but the mainstream has been uh, skeptical that anybody in the government does really take UFOs seriously or military uh, or have since 1969, even though we can show evidence. We've got documentation to show look they did take it seriously they have investigated certain cases but still it it doesn't stick you know they still uh haven't uh, bought into that but it seems to have changed when you have a harry reed when you have an elizondo out there now it seems to have changed and now it, it feels and, and i'd love to hear what you think um that they've kind of accepted that okay this situation this this ufos investigations are a serious thing that are at least taken seriously by some of our uh government and military yeah i mean this is the first time that we've known uh that there is an actual named program you know that we know how it was set up how it was funded how many years it went for we know who the person was that was in charge of it i mean these things were not known before and so it just takes everything to another level when you actually know for a fact that there was a there there is still a program. We know where it is. We know who was in charge of it and you know all this information about it and it has a name. So that's very different from before when we just would sort of speculate about well yeah, I'm sure that there's government interest in this, but uh we don't exactly know where it is or what it's called. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean and you're right. It, it and it does of course that's why the the article was so important because now the mainstream uh you know, will take it seriously a lot more. Once they know that the the Pentagon has a program and they can see videos and they can get information from that program uh they understand this at another level that's never been you know it just hasn't happened since the close of blue book that anything this important i think has has come out that's going to elevate the position that the topic has in the you know uh among the political world and the 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 world that really is responsible for policy making so it's a huge change in that regard And it does absolutely uh, elevate the seriousness that the topic will have. And I think it already has. And hopefully it'll continue to, it'll continue that way, you know, and hopefully more information will come out and we'll be able to keep this ball rolling. 
Are you all planning another story uh, to come out anytime soon? Um, we are exploring that. Yeah, it's just not something I really want to comment on. Okay. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> no. We're, we're not. We're not planning to drop the ball. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Which is great because uh, follow up is good to keep this in, in people's minds, and um, also because. Uh, you know, it, it does seem like, at least for the moment, uh, as we just mentioned, it there's a shift. There's uh, people are taking it more seriously right now. I think that's true, and I think that's that's really important. Mm-hmm. Really, really important. So it's about time to take a break. So we will come back momentarily. But uh, it is kind of interesting. I have a lot of people, you know, and maybe you've had this experience saying that you know they're getting calls from families and friend who are are actually taking the topic more seriously as well um someone joked about it yesterday that even though they do all this research and writing and have several books that their family hasn't even read all of a sudden now there's years later after this person's been been doing this you know they're being taken seriously by their family where they haven't up until now so a demonstration of the impact of this article but we'll talk more about that after the break for those of you listening on kgra you're going to hear a a short commercial break for those of you listening on the podcast you will hear just a short musical interlude and then we'll be back with leslie kane so stay tuned Welcome back to Open Mind UFO Radio. I'm your host Alejandro Rojas, and we were we are talking to journalist Leslie Kane, and uh, so you were able to look at that memo to confirm that the post uh, statement about uh, the videos being released for education and safety purposes is not in there. No, I mean the the the, the uh, his request for the release of the videos did not include anything to do with pilot education or aviation safety. Mm-hmm. So they they essentially are alluding to that he wasn't straightforward with his superiors. Um, but do you get that sense at all? Not at all. I mean, I don't. There's nothing in this document that suggests that he wasn't being straightforward. Mm-hmm. And um, 
absolutely nothing. Now, maybe the, the post has some document that I'm not aware of because I don't know what mm-hmm. you know they what they were referring to when they made that statement. I have no, I don't know. All I know is what I have, mm-hmm. and my documents don't suggest that. I also know that Elizondo is an, a very a person of incredible integrity and honesty, mm-hmm. and he would I, he just knowing him, I don't think he would ever be careful, be comfortable. Uh, being at all disingenuous about anything. He's very honest, very careful, very astute. And uh, so I just, I have to not comment on that because unless they have some, they're either making an error or they have some document that I'm not aware of, Mm -hmm. one or the other. Well, and now talking to Elizondo, he doesn't seem to, he doesn't have any, um, at least it, in the discussions that I've had with him, he doesn't seem to be frustrated with uh, or upset with his superiors. He doesn't seem to be at odds with uh, the DOD. He still is a patriot. He still believes in their mission. And he wants, he seems like he, and, and, and as mentioned, really wants to cooperate with them in what he's talking about. Yeah, that's absolutely right. He has the highest respect for the Department of Defense, for the people he worked with there, not just in the UFO program, but in all the other very, very sensitive jobs that he had. Uh, He was a counterintelligence officer. He was in the field doing a lot of stuff. I mean, this was a small part of what he did, this program. So he left the program with the utmost sense of respect of the, of the people he worked with and for the department and for the mission of the department and the greatest respect for Secretary Jim Mattis, who he knew well and actually served with in Afghanistan. And he, he considers Mattis to be one of the finest people he's ever known. Hmm. So that there's no negativity there at all about, about his work at the DOD. Um, he, you know, he just needed to retire and he needed to make the point that uh, more resources n- need to go to this study of this of this issue and he felt the best way to do that was to do what he did mm-hmm. uh, to draw attention to it because uh, it was just sort of impossible for the program to function uh, within the system there it was just dysfunctional there was no resources for it there were people that were opposed to it it was not you know very secret and so that needed to change and so mm-hmm. he made the he made the step he did to try to facilitate that changing but it has nothing to do with being critical of of the people he worked with or the the purpose of the department or anything else yeah you know i think it was an opinion piece in the times it was another in another paper if not the times i'm pretty sure it was the times though and you you may recall this story uh by someone who worked in intelligence and one of the reasons he said you know a program like this would be uh there are a few reasons why a program like this would be secret and one of those reasons is simply and he gave other examples of more mundane sorts of projects but that for some reason have some sort of social stigma attached to them and even though they may be important uh, because it's easy to make fun of them they don't want to reveal to the public that they're doing this sort of thing and if Elizondo's uh, actions, which I believe they have, can legitimize this topic some more, then that may allow uh, the military to uh, not have to deal with the ridicule factor uh, if they're setting up a project or working on a project like this, which hopefully may entice the military or other institutions to do this sort of work if we can get rid of that stigma that it's something to giggle about. Yeah, that certainly uh, it certainly helps, and I think the New York Times story has has helped to do that. 
did you all uh, then have the DOD or anybody look over the article before you released it or have a consultant that you worked with? You mean within the DOD? Yeah. Oh, no. No? No, no, no. No, the media is independent of, you know, the government that it's reporting on. You don't have to clear it yeah. with that agency. I just know some people, I know like Charles Halt, for instance, has ran stuff uh, through his superiors before and, and Nick Pope. So I was just wondering if you all had, had done something or felt you had to do that. Um, yeah, because those are, those are people who are actual employees or who are part of the system of the government. So they may have to clear it, but an independent news organization doesn't have to. And then I guess the other question is, you know, this whole... Now, of course, and unfortunately, the more kind of uh, fringe aspects of, of this field, of which are large, maybe the, uh, the majority of the UFO field is really kind of very speculative and, and conspiratorial. So, of course, there's this idea that maybe Elizondo's on a secret mission to somehow frame or disinform uh, people on this topic. I mean, do you get that sense whatsoever? Absolutely not. I mean, it's just an absurd, absurd notion to me. And I've I've spent a lot of time speaking with him. And so I would say absolutely not. He's he's genuine. He has high integrity and he's doing what he's doing for the reasons he says he is. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. And it's funny yeah. because even though you say that and I've talked to him and I feel the same way, I think that when you, you talk to him, you get an idea of his motivations, um, what his life is like, uh, impacts this has have, uh, had on his life, the sacrifices he's had to make to get uh, some of this information out. Um, and I think even standing back, even without talking to him, I felt that way uh, looking at the whole situation. But there are so many people that really build these worldviews that even if they were to speak to him, I think um, there's practically nothing that would convince them otherwise. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why that is unless they feel they're just very, very, very mistrustful of anyone within government, mm -hmm. possibly, or maybe some of the people, uh, you know, They've built their whole kind of careers and personalities around a particular uh, theory that they have, and maybe they don't want to let that go because it would, mm -hmm. you know, they've built up their, yeah. their whole persona around it. So they're very attached to trying to maintain their particular conspiracy theory, and therefore they have to fit him into that rather than maybe shifting the way they look at things. Mm -hmm. But, you know, some of the things, yeah, just the conspiracies about uh, – I mean, I, I wasn't even aware that people were saying that. About, <laughs> oh, a about lot Elizondo. of people are saying that. <laughs> that he's he's trying to deceive people. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just, to me, it's just ridiculous. But Yeah, it's unfortunate. Know. I mean, and, and there's a lot of it out there, even from, you know, more well-known researchers, certainly people that uh, you've interacted with as well. And um and it's unfortunate. I agree with you, especially uh, to go there without gathering the facts. And it's missing the point. It's focusing on the wrong thing. It's focusing on how do I fit this story into my worldview and this scenario that I've built instead of just looking for at it for what it is and then missing all the important parts of it, such as the effect that this has had on the mainstream, which is such a huge positive, I think, for um, this topic being taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's why I mean, you know, I'm I'm just not that aware of what's going on in sort of the um with in the UFO community world. Mm -hmm. But um just cuz, you know, but 
So I don't know what else to say about it. Yeah. With uh, the uh, your story, there's a couple other important pieces that were in there. Oh, and I guess just to follow up on the last point real quick is yeah. that's why I think it's really important to have like you come on and talk about how this story came about because I think mm-hmm. a lot of people think of, you know, these these cabal people like an X-Files sitting in a dark room at the New York Times um, coming up with a plan. We're going to write this story and that story. Who can we get to write it? And who can we get in the DOD oh, yeah. to be our guy to tell people this? You know, I think there's... You mean like it's some kind of orchestrated plan yeah. thing by some organization or entity that controls all the information, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, I have never, ever encountered anything to give me even the smallest hint that that's what's going on mm-hmm. in my own work. And certainly not in this article with the New York Times. I mean, we, it happened the way I'm telling you it happened. Right. I got this information. We pitched it to the Times. They said, hey, yes, this is a story. Let's do it. It's that simple. Yeah, and that's the tragedy with uh, these conspiracy theories because then all of these people who are working with the mainstream uh, media or, you know, or or production uh, organizations on television shows or movies or documentaries, you know, they're not giving credit that they're the ones who came up with this idea. I mean, it was you going to Blumenthal. It was you all. That's where that what generated the this story and the situation, or at least this story, to get out. So people then, yeah, you know, it, it allows people to have these conspiracies where they're not giving credit where credit's due. I guess so. I, I don't know why they're so attached to that. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, there have been plenty of insiders over the years who know a lot more than is being revealed. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's what people are concerned about. A lot of the reason that a lot of stuff has not come out is simply be- due to the fact that it's classified. It's mm-hmm. highly classified and protected in special access programs and so on. And people who know about these things would go to jail if they talked about it. Yeah. So it's, a, you know, they can't do it. And so you can't fault them. It doesn't mean there's some grand conspiracy behind it. It just means like so many other topics, certain things are kept secret for, for a lot of different reasons. And, you know, on this issue, I've learned a lot more about the, the role that um, uh, concern for our adversaries uh, getting a hold of a lot of this information. That plays a big role in the desire to protect it. And that's mm-hmm. legitimate. That's right. legitimate. So I don't know. I I mean, I can understand that people are frustrated that more has not been released and that the government hasn't acknowledged a lot of things. But I don't think, you know, creating this, this idea that there's some vast cabal conspiracy controlling it and they're like planning how they're going to let you know, they're planning everything and they've set up to the stars because they're manipulating <laughs> Tom DeLonge to create this this thing and they're giving him certain information and then they're controlling the next step, which is the New York Times. And then they're I just I've never seen that there's any force behind these things that are that are making them all happen. Mm-hmm. Right. I just don't I don't understand where that theory comes from unless some of the people behind these theories know something that I don't know, but I and that's possible. I don't know everything. Yeah, which may be possible in some cases, but in this case particularly, um, there's just so much speculation and people standing steadfastly to their speculation and, and as opposed to doing the hard work and speaking to people like you to figure out what the 
how things actually did come about. I mean, why why do they have a need to not just accept what's you know what the truth is, yeah. or uh, why do they have a need to create all these these complicated scenarios? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, mean, I don't either. So some of the more fascinating parts, some of the really incredible parts of this story there's an idea of uh there's a paragraph on a couple of the other things that they looked into including some sort of metal that is in a bigelow uh building somewhere yeah i mean that of course is an extremely interesting component to me and we are trying to pursue that i I can't comment any further on it and we would love to be able to learn more about that. Uh, so that's all I can really say at this point. Mm-hmm. So you can't speak on its origins or... or uh... Uh, it's very, very, very hard to access information along those lines. But mm-hmm. so we, we're, 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 we're seeing what we, you know, I just can't comment or I'll get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. No problem, no problem. And yeah. then also on the second part of that paragraph, it talked about... Um, interviewing people who had, uh, or at least believe they had had physical effects due to um, an encounter with a UFO, essentially. Um, Right. Were you able to find out much about who they talked to? Some speculation out there is that um, this may be related to the Rendlesham incident. Yeah, I mean, I guess that would be an example of a case where a close encounter certainly affected people. Absolutely. Um, You know, we we were writing more about cases that the program was involved with, which of course wouldn't have been Rendlesham. Mm. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the, the people who have had these effects are, do not want to go on the record, mm. unfortunately. So uh, that's always an issue as a journalist is getting people who are willing to put their names on, on a, on a case like that. And that's very hard to come by. But um, so that's, that's just, you know, something else too, that we, we have to try to find more at, out about but it is most people involved in those kinds of effects don't want to go public about it mm-hmm. now but certainly yeah but i i understand what you're saying about rendlesham that's a good example mm-hmm. um yeah do you know uh the cases that 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 a tip now that we're all calling it kind of uh, uh due to the acronym um mm-hmm. looked into were those all submitted to them from the military or were they from the public or perhaps from from pilots or other organizations? No, they were all military cases. Mm. So that really limits, I mean, they were sometimes brought by other agencies to them, but mm. they were all um, cases involving military pilots. So they didn't, even even cases that occurred during their tenure, such as the O'Hare case in 2006. Uh, oh, wait, no, that was before. They didn't start to 2007, so I'm wrong about that. But even any cases that just involve civilians or even commercial pilots, we're not under the purview of that program. Hmm. Do you know how many cases that they looked at? Oh, gosh. I, I, you know, at some point I got an estimate. It might have been like about maybe a, a dozen a year, something like mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah. 10 a year, something like that, as I recall. And were these cases that uh, were already vetted? In other words, um, the people who obtained or, or felt there was something mysterious about their case, did they already go over the investigation trying to figure out what it was before they submitted it to uh, ATIP? That's a good question. I I don't know. I mean, I think 
they probably, my sense is they worked with ATIP to explore these cases. Mm. They maybe didn't know a lot about it before that because I don't, but you know, it's probably different for every case. And mm-hmm. I, I just don't, I don't feel I have enough information to answer that. Um, what I about the that, number of yeah. unknowns? That's another question. I mean, these would be great things for you to ask Elizondo when you okay. do your interview with him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, these are all questions I'd love to ask him and I just haven't been focused on it. <laughs> In terms of how many of them you mean of those cases were actually resolved and explained right. versus how many, yeah. And that as a question I can't answer. I wish I could. And then I guess but, what about the third video? Is that going to be released soon? Do you know much about um, that? I think it is going to be released soon, mm-hmm. but that's all I can say at this point. But yeah, I think it is. Do you know if it'll have more information uh, along with it, then perhaps like the gimbal one, for example, I had zero information that came. I along know with it. the problem is that information was classified, so mm-hmm. they weren't allowed to. We, we weren't allowed to have access to it. Um, and I don't know about the third one with that respect to that. Okay, I don't know. It may be a similar situation mm-hmm. where but, you have the audio, but you don't have much other data, which is it's difficult. But mm-hmm. if it's protected, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. But I mean, luckily, we did get one extraordinary case. And and, and this is great because uh, and that's why I think I kept thinking 2008 was, of course, the Nimitz San Diego case, uh, which is a very exciting case. And it's wonderful that not only that this case has gotten more attention um, and now we know it was taken seriously and investigated by Elizondo and the group, um, but uh, it's getting uh, it's held up. I mean, it's a strong case, and now we have these witnesses, the pilot going, pilots going and talking to people in the media. Uh, it's another really strong case now that we can kind of add to the list of, of strong cases that we can point to for credibility for the, the topic. Yeah, and I think that it helps the media take it seriously and it, because it was investigated by the program, even though it ha- occurred actually in 2004 before the program even started. But nonetheless, they went back and they did a bunch of interviews and they collected documents on it. And uh, fortunately, you know, that case is not buried somewhere in some kind of system that we don't have access to in the DOD. So it, I agree with you. It's And it was wonder. Dave Fravor, the pilot, uh, was an, was is an excellent interview and he's mm-hmm. very available to speak to the media which has been great because we didn't know if that would be the case or not when we had him in our story um but he's very very compelling and intelligent and uh so that's been an important that was an important component of our story to have a case that we could bring forward as an example of the kind of things they investigated and also to have the video of the of the uh object that was you know or one of the objects if if there were more than one that was seen during the Nimitz it was a period of days but so it was it was great to have that as a part of the story I think really really important Mm -hmm. to be able to include that yeah well I guess that's everything thank you so much I think that conversations like this are really important I think you know for people out there it you before you jump to wild conclusions you got to vet that stuff you got to go talk to the people who are doing things and you know you and i talked about the media and these misperceptions about the media being taken over and you know i work with the media i work closely and some of our colleagues such as james fox who makes documentaries or lee spiegel who worked at the huffington post or george knapp who works for mainstream news you know uh or bryce zabel we're going to have at the conference who works on movies um you know these people 
are the ones coming up with these great stories or they're the champions who are trying to, uh, such as yourself, get the credible information out. And to say that they're manipulated or somehow their projects came from top down when that's not the case is unfortunate because these people just work hard to get this information out there. And, and like your situation, it, it sometimes takes a lot of work and effort, but it's worth it because it's very important. And, you know, the you all deserve the credit for getting this out there. And, and it's frustrating when people just kind of blow it off and, oh, they were told to do that. <laughs> I don't know who they think is telling us anything. <laughs> I don't know either. The do you think I would man. like, I get on the phone or go in some dark room with a cigarette smoker and, you know, t- I'm told what to do? Well, I don't know how they imagine that it works, but I can tell you it's yeah. incredibly hard work. I mean, mm-hmm. it was really, really, really hard work and to do this in so many different levels. And my whole life was on hold during this. You know, people read an article. They have no concept of how much goes into every single paragraph and how much background you have to cover in order to write that one paragraph. How much more you know than is ever even in the article, you know? And just the, the the editing process and the sensitivity of all of it and the reporting, it just takes a huge amount of time. It's very, very hard work. And we're doing this because we believe that this information needs to reach the world so that we can change the paradigm. And, you know, there's a whole team of people doing this. And when you, when you do this work and then you hear these theories that, like you were just saying, it's just like, what? You know, <laughs> what are you, you know, what is that? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to have the time to talk to every single UFO researcher that has these concerns. But, you know, I'm a, it, it does help to talk to the people that you're, you're preaching about. You know, if, if they're coming out and saying all these things about me and they've never even talked to me, it's just you wonder where the information comes from. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just, you know, I, I, I've never encountered, and you know, they could say, well, it's all behind the scenes, so you're not aware of it. Uh, I really don't think that the editors at the New York Times who decided to do this have anybody telling them what to do and not to do. Yeah, right. I mean, I just, it just doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just the moment. The reason the story came now was because Elizondo retired. Right. Elizondo decided to that it, this was the time where he had to. He was he he was frustrated enough that he couldn't do what he needed to do inside, and that's what precipitated the whole story. It wasn't anything beyond that. Well, that's great. I think that clears things up a lot. Thank you so much for coming on the show again, and I'm really happy to talk to you about all of this. And then, you know, thank you so much for pushing this story and getting it in the Times. I think, you know, your stories are, I mean, when you look at the timeline, let's say, of of, of progress on, on this topic, have been so important, and they often garner so much attention because of of the careful way that you put them together. Um, it's just wonderful to have you out there doing this sort of stuff, and uh, I think you deserve so much credit for this, and thank you so much. Well, thanks, Alejandro. I appreciate that, and um, thanks to all your listeners. And, you know, I'm on Facebook, so if anybody has questions about the conspiracies or any of that stuff, they can certainly uh, come on my Facebook page, and I'd be happy to dialogue on, on that with anybody. All right. Great. Thanks.
Thank you so much to Leslie Kane for joining us on the show. We went over a bit, so hopefully KGRA won't mind that we're we're going into hopefully not someone else's show or or taking up some commercial time or what have you. But you know, this was a really important interview. Uh, I think she has some very important perspectives to share, especially because you know, in the wake of this story, there's been so many conspiracy theories. So I think it's important that she voice you know her thoughts on on just these ideas about these people coming up with so many uh, strange, um, you know, assumptions about how this all took place. And it's great for her to be able to clear the air. And, you know, we need to give her credit where credit's due. It's just wonderful that, you know, her and Ralph Blumenthal could go to the New York Times and make this happen because obviously it's been very, very important. And of course, thank you to Louise Elizondo for coming out and sharing all of this information. And guess what he told me? He told me he was inspired by UFO researchers. That's why he is so excited to address people at the UFO Congress. So we're going to play this video uh, at the UFO Congress. Uh, before the video, I'm going to share kind of how this all came about uh, and how we got here. After the video, we're going to have Nick Pope on hand, who, of course, we've had on the show to talk about this. But he did the same thing. He was a Fox Mulder out there in the U.K., so we'll wrap up with uh, him being able to comment on some of the things Louise says. We uh, still are gathering questions. So if you have some questions, send those questions to Alejandro at UFOcongress.com. Alejandro at UFOcongress.com. And if you haven't yet, be sure to register for the conference at UFOcongress.com. Of course, besides Louise, we're going to have a number of really great speakers. Um, It's going to be, people are really excited about this year, and uh, it's going to be fun. There's a wide variety of speakers, but something for everybody. And again, you know, it's wonderful to be able to create these once-in-a-lifetime kind of historic moments, and we all feel it when we're in the room, you know, when uh, we have certain people speak who, who, who haven't before and, uh, or people who share and convey these emotions and information that, um, are just really touching. And this is going to be really fun. It's going to be wonderful to have this be a vehicle for Luis to talk to you all and talk to UFO researchers and the whole crowd and share why he's done what he's done uh, to thank the people that inspired him and to answer a bunch of questions that we're all dying to ask. So remember, go to ufocongress.com. Otherwise, thank you to Martin Willis of Podcast UFO for joining us with the news. Thank you to Caleb Hanks for the opening and close music. Thank you to Systematics for that bumper music. And thank you to you all for listening. Until next time, adios muchachos.